Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Leviticus chapter 21, as we've been going through the book of Leviticus, deals with uh, just it's God is setting up the nation of Israel uh, as a nation. Started out as a family, now it's a nation. They're at Mount Sinai here. This is where this is taking place. The Lord God is giving the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses and the, uh, there at Mount Sinai, and he's also giving him some instructions. And so as we've been going through Leviticus, there's a lot of instructions in Leviticus for the priesthood. And so this is for the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. And chapter 21 deals with the requirements uh, for the priesthood. And uh, to be a priest, by the way, in, in, as far as a Levite, a Levitical priest, you didn't like, you know, sign up and go to seminary. You didn't like, you know, hey, I, I, you know, I, I want to be a priest. You were born into the priesthood. They had no other way to get into it. Uh, you didn't get out of it either. You were born into it. There's no other way. And uh, <clears throat> so looking at that and then considering what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.5. Now, he's talking to believers, you and I, Christians. It says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So you and I, just like Levitical priests, we're born into a priesthood. If you have a personal born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you are part of that royal priesthood. And uh, now you might say, well, yeah, but I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, male or free, female, the Bible doesn't, doesn't, doesn't designate as far as in the new covenant. We are part of a priesthood. Now, husbands and fathers... You have a special role, I believe, scripturally supported, of being the priest to your home, being responsible to represent uh, the, God to your children and your wife and for you to intercede for them and stuff. So there's a special role for husbands and fathers. However, all of us can minister as that royal priesthood, whether you're, again, whether you're a male or female. Because what does a priest do? A priest represents God to men and men to God. He's, he's in between, ministering in between. And so like I said before, if you're born again, you're a member of the royal uh, priesthood. Now the question is, do you want to be used by God to minister in that role? And you know, if you're like me, you're like, Lord, I want you to use my life as much as you want to use me. I'm, I'm available for you. And so chapter 21, again, it's dealing with the Levitical priesthood um, and it strictly applies to them, uh, you know, to their to application of the priest, but there are spiritual applications that I believe apply to us. And so this morning, I'm going to be looking at the requirements for the priesthood. They're spelled out in chapter 21, and, uh, and there's seven areas uh, that we're going to discuss that I think apply to you and I if we want to be used by the Lord as that royal priesthood. Now, you know, you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born again, uh, and, you know, if you do nothing else the rest of your life and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're still going to go to heaven because you have a relationship with him. However, that's not what we're here for. 
you know. Otherwise, God would, you know, people get saved and then poof, they'd be out of here. Back, they're up in heaven. Okay, there's another one except the Lord. Praise the Lord, man. The population of the world's getting smaller. But the reality, reality, excuse me, is you and I were placed on this planet. We were saved to be used by the Lord, to minister to others, to draw others into the kingdom of heaven. And so if you want to be used by the Lord, I believe that these principles that we're going to look at this morning, these seven uh, areas, uh, they apply to us. And so that's the, way, that's the way we'll be looking at this. So we're beginning with Leviticus 21, verse 1, and going through verse 4, if you want to follow along. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives, who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband. For her he may defile himself, otherwise he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people to profane himself. So the requirement for the Levitical, Levitical priests is don't defile yourselves with the dead. In other words, you can't touch a corpse. You can't be involved with the funeral aspects or, or the preparing of a dead body for burial or anything like that. Um, now, the interesting thing here is there's no mention of sin here, okay? This is not talking about sin, but about being ceremonially unclean. In other words, the priest, if they came in contact with a dead body, they were no longer ceremonially clean, and they couldn't perform their functions and duties as a priest if they were unclean. And so you look at that and go, well, what's the spiritual application for us? Well, one thing I want to say, you know, we're talking about the dead. The, what I think this is a picture of, of course, is people who are spiritually dead. Those people who don't have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and so they're unbelievers. And But the thing is, for you and I, you might say that and go, okay, that means I can't have any contact with an unbeliever. But that's not, I believe, what scriptures teaches. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if you come in contact with unbelievers, it's going to defile you, you know, so we're going to be in this holy huddle. We're just, we're not going to do anything with the world around us. We're in the world, but we're not part of the world. And so what do we do? Well, whenever you're in doubt about, well, how does this apply to me? You always look at Jesus in the New Testament. How did Jesus example this to us? And so I'm going to draw your attention to Mark chapter 1 verses 40 to 41 it says now a leper came to him this is speaking about jesus imploring him kneeling down uh, kneeling down to him and saying to him if you are willing you can make me clean now if you understand leprosy it was a contagious disease it would make anybody else unclean if they touched a leper and so there was supposed to be no contact with a leper now jesus i mean the bible calls him the great high, high priest so if anybody shouldn't be touching a leper shouldn't be around something like that it would be the the great high priest but look what jesus says or what jesus did in verse 41 then jesus moved with compassion stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And you know, Jesus always had disciples following him, 12 disciples. Can you imagine they're watching him like, no, 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 no. he touched him, you know. But Jesus was willing to touch him. So he's our example. Another illustration, Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> Got ahead of myself there. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. 
And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the reason why Jesus was here was to call sinners, unbelievers, spiritually unclean people to repentance. And so Jesus interacted with unbelievers. He came in contact with lepers. And so the first point that I think I want to apply to you and I as far as our spiritual priesthood is that your and my relationship with unbelievers, it matters. It matters what your relationship is with unbelievers. Now, I'm not saying, again, and hopefully you're understanding this, I'm not saying you have to stay clear and have no contact and no interruption or no interaction with unbelieving family members or people around you. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is in those situations, don't put yourself in a position of compromise where you can no longer function as a priest to them or for them on their behalf. You know, you've compromised yourself. You're much. You're, you know, you're you're involved with. You're around them, and they're you're, you know they're doing something, and you're getting involved with it, and and then pretty soon it's like, no, I can't. I can't say anything because I'm doing the same thing they're doing. Don't compromise yourself to the point where you can't. You can no longer function as a priest. So our relationship with unbelievers does matter. Well, let's move on here to verse five of Leviticus 21. They shall not make any bald places on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. Now, for the Levitical priests, these practices that they were not to replicate, that they were not to, to mimic, was what the pagan nations were all doing around Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan at that time. It was related to death rituals. The Egyptians did that. Uh, the Canaanites did that. Uh, whether it was tattoos or trimming their beards in certain ways. And so obviously, hopefully you understand, obviously this doesn't apply to us physically. Because if that's the case, then uh, uh, those of you that have uh, no hair, you're, you know, you're disqualified or, you know, you got to let your beard grow, you know, I mean, whatever you got to do, you know. Um, so obviously this doesn't apply physically to you and I, but it does apply spiritually, I do believe. And I want to point you to 3 John chapter 1, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. We're not to imitate evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, abstain from every form of evil. Sometimes maybe you're not doing something sinful, but if you're involved, if you're, you know, people look at you and they see you. Um, I've seen situations where uh, couples, you know, they're, they're living in the same house. Uh, they're not married. Uh, one's a believer. Maybe they're both believers. And, you know, I've, I've confronted people in those kind of situations. And they say, well, you know, we're not having sex. I'm like, oh, praise God. I'm, I'm glad that you're not. But you know what? You have the appearance who knows that you're not? I mean, the world looks at you, and you've got this testimony of you're a believer, and the world looks at you, they don't know that you're not. So we're to abstain from every form of evil as well. I like this quote from Adam Clark. 
Sin not and avoid even the appearance of it. Do not drive your morality so near the bounds of evil as to lead even weak persons to believe that you actually touch, taste, or handle it. Let not the form of it appear with or among you, much less the substance. And so what's the second point here? The second point is this. Our reputation with unbelievers matters. You know, I was thinking about... uh, Zachariah. By the way, uh, the, the guys in the Bible study, we have a Bible study every Tuesday evening uh, at 7 p.m. And what we've been doing is we've been picking men in the Bible and we've been just looking at their lives, just, you know, reading through the scriptures and discussing it and learning applications. And our next, we just finished going through Gideon. Our next uh, person that we're going to be looking at is John the Baptist. So if you're coming on Tuesday night, read up on John the Baptist. We'll be, we'll be looking at that. But anyways, John the Baptist's father's name is Zechariah. And it's recorded in Luke, the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah was a priest. And they, the priests, they, had, they kind of rotated in and out of doing ministry in the temple. And so uh, if you know the story of John the Baptist, his father, it was when the angel appeared to John the Baptist, or appeared to Zechariah's father and said, hey, your son, you're going to have a, you're going to have a, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And you know the story from probably from a Christmas play or whatever. Um, but while the angel was talking to Zechariah in the temple, I, I find this interesting. And I'm just going to, uh, actually, I think I'm just going to read it to you. It says, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So if you know the story, the angel appears to Zechariah while he's serving in the temple and telling him, hey, you're, you're, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be named John, you know, the, the prophecy about John the Baptist and stuff. Zechariah, he was kind of amazed and he couldn't speak as a result of, you know, he, he was, you know, had struggled believing with it. And so uh, he couldn't speak. Well, anyways, the people are sitting outside of the tabernacle or out of the temple and they're waiting and, and watching and, and then he comes out, wow, what, what took him so long? The point I'm trying to get across is people were watching Zechariah the priest. And the point that I want to get across to you and I is people are watching you and I in our role as a priesthood. They're watching you and I. How do, how do we interact? How do we deal with situations in our lives? What, what is our testimony around people? Um, People are watching us. You know, of course, that's unless you're a JBF. I was a JBF for, for a while. You know what JBF is? It's a James Bond for the Lord. Actually, it's JBFL, but James Bond for the Lord. I was a secret agent, man. High school, I didn't want anybody to know that I was a Christian because then I could do whatever I wanted. And then we say, hey, what are you doing that for? You're a Christian. So I was undercover, man. It was a covert operation. I was really good at it until I rededicated my life to the Lord. So if you're a James Bond for the Lord this morning, 007, um, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but if people even know that you're a Christian, they're watching you. They're watching me. People were watching Jesus closely all the time, especially during that last week before his crucifixion. And what did they say? They couldn't find any guilt in him. So my question to you, what's your reputation with unbelievers? On Wednesday nights, we've been going through 1 Peter 2. And we just last Wednesday were talking about uh, that portion in First Peter two, where Peter says, you know, uh, if if you if you if you're being uh, persecuted for 
the Lord's sake, hey, that's great, you're blessed and stuff, but don't be persecuted for being a jerk. I'm paraphrasing it. Don't be persecuted for being lazy or being a complainer or a gossip or a hothead. So what our reputation with unbelievers is, it matters. Again, you could go through life as a Christian and just you know, do whatever you want, but do you want to be used by the Lord? Do you want to be blessed? Do you, do you want to see fruit in your life? Well, then our reputation with unbelievers does matter. Let's move on here in verse 7. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire." Now, for you and I as believers, there's an obvious application I hope that you understand, and that is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what he's talking about, I believe, is in intimate relations. For example, boyfriend, girlfriend, or getting married. If you're a believer, uh, don't try to get married to an unbeliever because I can guarantee your, your marriage is gonna, it's going to be bad because there's, there, you've got, there's going to be a clash on raising kids, on decisions that are made and stuff. And so Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It will have a negative impact on your capacity and your ability to serve the Lord as a believer if, if you're in that kind of a compromising situation. But I also, that's the obvious application, but I think it goes deeper than that. So the priests were to set their affections on a bride that was pure, and here in this passage, in a sexual sense. And so the question I have for you and I as priests, do we set our affections on that which is spiritually pure? And that's my third point. What we set our affections on matters. And I even think it applies to how we view people around us. Jesus, of course, you always look at Jesus. He presents us, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, he presents us as his bride. We're the bride of Christ. Uh, you know, we've got warts and blemishes. We're not a perfect church. I'm not a perfect person. But Jesus Christ presents me, presents you, presents us to himself as a glorious church. He doesn't look at our spots, our warts, our wrinkles, our blemishes. And so the application here, look at this, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. I love that. That's the way the Lord views you and I. He doesn't see us as the flakes we are. He sees us as a glorious church. Philippians 4, verses 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Set your affections on what is pure. 
Now notice in verse 9 of Leviticus chapter 21, that's kind of an interesting thing. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. Um, you know, this is obviously, literally speaking, about a harlot and a priesthood. If your daughter's a, a harlot, um, you know, you have to deal with that. But here's, I think, the application for you and I. You know, we're to set our affections on what is pure. We're to, we're to think of those things that are noble, those things that are just, those things that are good. We're, we're to think the best about people around us. And sometimes as parents, we think the best, well, hopefully we do think the best of our children, right? Um, but here's the warning. Don't let your affections cloud your responsibility to teach your children and, and discipline them in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Some people, are, their kids are like Johnny Angel. Johnny Angel. <laughs> you know, my child doesn't do anything wrong. Well, uh, they're sinners, okay? I got to just say that. Um, but here's the point. A family out of control, it can render a ministry ineffective. A family out of control can render a ministry ineffective. Now, as we move on here, we've been talking, these first uh, nine verses have been dealing with priests, just the priesthood in general. Now we're talking about the high priest. That's the special priest that once a year they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would administer to the Lord there in the, in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And so the high priest had much more responsibility and there was much more, the, the requirements were that much more stricter for the high priest. Look at verse 10. He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body nor defile himself for his father or his mother. So it's even that much more stricter for the high priest. Why was the high priest not to uncover his head or tear his clothes? That was a sign of very great uh, extreme either anger or mourning. Uh, it was an extreme expression of emotion. And there's examples of that throughout scriptures. Uh, there's a story of a man named Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, verse 35. The guy made a, just a stupid, uh, uh, well, in my opinion anyways, he made a very unwise uh, vow to the Lord. And then it, then it came down to when he had to fulfill his vow because he made it to the Lord. It was like, what did I do? And uh, it says in Jephthah, excuse me, in Judges 11, verse 35, he tore his clothes when he saw his daughter after returning from a battle and making a rash vow. And kind of the story, if you're not familiar with that, he said, Lord, if you deliver me, then the first thing that, that meets me when I come home, I'm going to offer it to you, sacrifice it to you. And his daughter came out. And he's like, oh, and that's, we won't get into that. That's a whole other Bible study there. But there's several examples in the Old Testament of people tearing their clothes. It was an extreme emotional display. And so the high priest was not to display an extreme outburst of emotion. When uh, Nadab and Abihu, recall we earlier in Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu, they were sons serving as priests with, uh, with Aaron, they were killed before the Lord. And uh, Moses instructed Aaron in, in Leviticus 10, verse 6, uh, not, and his remaining sons, he had two other sons that, that were still surviving, to not uncover their heads or tear their clothes. They weren't to have this extreme uh, display of the emotion. 
which is really interesting because again, if you look at Jesus, not Jesus himself, but if you look at the trial of Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 65, it says, then the high priest, here's the high priest, tore his clothes saying he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. The high priest wasn't supposed to do that. And yet in an extreme outburst of emotion, in this case, anger, he tore his clothes. The fourth point I think that I want to bring out, you know, that I think fits with this, is how we control our emotions matters. How you and I control our emotions matters. You might say, well, wait a minute. You always talk about using Jesus as an example. Don't we have the story where Jesus went into the temple and he, he made a cord of a whip out of out of cords and he and he drove out the money changers and he overturned their tables and he drove out those that were sellers and of doves and stuff. Wasn't he angry? Yeah, he was. I, I believe he was. I believe he was very angry. There's another story. I've been going through Mark in my own time reading and in Mark chapter three verse. Four through five. Here's a story where Jesus is in in the uh, synagogue and he's teaching, and there's a man there with a withered hand, and then they're they're trying to trap Jesus because it's on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, and so they said to him there in verse four, "Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save a life or to kill?" But they kept silent. Oh no, he said to them, "Excuse me, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill?" But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. We have two examples where Jesus was angry. He looked around with anger. He responded in anger. But what's interesting to me is that James tells us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why is that? And I think Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 gives us a clue. Paul wrote this. He said, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And I don't want anybody to raise your hands here this morning, but let me just ask this rhetorically. Why don't you think about it? When you are angry, when you are righteously angry, when you are justifiably angry about some situation, how often is our wrath accompanied with malice, accompanied with blasphemy or filthy language? See, when we get angry, we sin. Jesus didn't sin. And so, you know, we have to be careful about our our emotions, extreme outbursts of anger and wrath. In fact, that's one of the qualifications for elders and pastors in uh, Titus, and I believe it applies not just to pastors and elders, but to everybody. Uh, in Titus 1 verse 7 says, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. So here's my point. To be used by the Lord in ministry to others, if you really want to minister to people, we need to exercise self-control in the area of our emotions. Now, what I'm not saying is 
you know, something terrible happens and something really stirs you up that you got to act stoic, like, you know, I can't, I can't explain, you know, I can't display any emotions. That, that's not what I'm saying. The Bible says we grieve when people are, you know, family, love members pass away. We grieve, but we don't grieve as the world does. The gr world grieves without hope. We have a hope. We still grieve. I, you know, shed tears easily. But we need to exercise patience and mercy and compassion and self-control. If you want to be used by the Lord. If you don't care about being used by the Lord, hey, you know, that's up to you. It's between you and God. But if you want to be used by the Lord, you need to exercise self-control. Moving on here, verse 12. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. So the high priest, special role, going into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was manifested, he had to be completely purified, ceremonially clean, undefiled, otherwise he couldn't minister in the tabernacle. And if he left, you know, if he walked out and he just walked down the street down to the local market, he wanted to get a hot pocket or something, you know, he was hungry or whatever, he defiled himself. Now he can't go into the Holy of Holies anymore. So he had to stay in that place. He couldn't remove himself from the, from the tabernacle grounds because he was ceremonially clean. Now, for you and I under the new covenant, it's not, that's not the case. It's not like you guys have to stay here in church. You can't go anywhere because otherwise you're going to defile yourself. It's not that at all. Under the new covenant, it's a different story. But I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Paul says this, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So here's the deal. For you and I, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus this morning, the temple of God's in you. If I leave this place, the temple of God goes with me. Wherever you go, and that's good news, but it can also be bad news, right? Because <laughs> wherever you go, God's there. If you're in a compromising place, hey, I just got news for you. God's there with you. But here's the point. So we go, wherever we go, the sanctuary goes with us. Because we are the sanctuary. We are the temple of the living God. And so because of that, we're never off the clock, so to speak, as Christians. And so here's my fifth point. How we spend our time matters. Again, it's not that we have to be at church constantly. It's not like you can only watch Christian programming exclusively or you, can only, do, you only can do spiritual things. Again, Look back at Jesus. What was his, expense? It's his example? You know, Jesus would spend all day performing miracles and teaching, and he would just be, he would just like expend himself doing all kinds of stuff all day. People kept coming to him. And, uh, and then a multitude would, would follow him, and he'd be, he'd be wiped out. Him and his disciples would be wiped out. A multitude would follow him, and he'd have compassion on them, and he would continue ministering. If you read through this, the gospel accounts, you'll never read where Jesus says, hey, <laughs> I'm off the clock right now. This is my day off, or this is me time, you know. Jesus never does that. He always ministers. Sometimes, I know I'm tempted to have that attitude. Hey, I'm off the clock, man. I, I need some downtime, you know. But the reality is, we're never really off the clock as Christians. We're never really off the clock. Some of you here, in fact, many of you here are Mayo Clinic professionals. I always think, you know, if you are a, Rochester's the base, best city 
to have a heart attack in or to have some major medical emergency because chances are there's going to be like 30 people around you that know what to do. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's just that's the way it is. We were attending a church when we first moved into town here and uh, some guy collapsed right in the middle of service and I saw literally, it was like a dozen guys and women jumping over the pews trying to get to this guy and they're arguing, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm this and I'm that, you know, they're, it's like, it's my specialty, you know, and stuff and it was pretty funny to watch but I thought, man, Man, this is a good place to be. But you guys know this, right? I know there's doctors, there's nurses, there's other professionals here from Mayo Clinic. If someone were to happen here, now it's your day off, because otherwise you wouldn't be here, right? Unless you're on call, of course. But um, so let's assume it's your day off and somebody drops right here on the floor. Maybe it's me or something. Well, if it's me, I won't use me because you might say, ah, let him go. No, I'm just <laughs> But let's say somebody you really care about here collapses on the floor. What's your reaction going to be? Hey, this is my day off, man. Let's call an ambulance. No. I know for a fact every one of you that's a Mayo medical, or maybe you're not just Mayo, but a, a medically trained person, you're going to jump up and you're going you're to do what you need to do, right? Because you're going to save a life. I mean, I know that that's the case for all of you. That's the way we are supposed to be as Christians, too. We're never off the clock as Christians. When there's an emergency, hey, we minister. Sometimes you might say, well, I want me time. Well, really? Do you really want me time? Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were always trying to catch up, trap, trip up Jesus. They were trying to find some fault or something that they could accuse him. And at one point, they go up to him and they think, okay, we've got him now. We've got him down cold. And they say, teacher, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're thinking, okay, if he says pay taxes to Caesar, he's just alienated a bunch of Jewish people. If he says don't pay taxes, then they can report him to Rome, and the, the Roman IRS are going to get him. You know, I mean, they're going to—he's—they've got him. And uh, Jesus says, "Hey, anybody got a coin?" Some people teach that Jesus was wealthy. You know, like he was—you know—he didn't have a coin. Anybody got a coin? Someone pulls out a coin. He says, "Hey, whose image and whose inscription is on this coin?" And they go, "Well, it's Caesar, of course." And he said this, he said, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they, 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 like, they didn't know how to respond. See, the reason why I bring that up, it's tax time, pay your taxes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, the reason why I bring that up, sorry to depress you guys. <laughs> the reason why I bring that up is because whose image and whose inscription are, is on you? We were all created in God's image. But if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have God's name inscribed on you. You're not your own. You're not your own life. So render to God what's God's. Render to him your life. So I want to get this across to you. It, it, this is an important point. I'm not saying you can't have a day off, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you can't go on a vacation. You can't just like, I just want to watch a movie and have fun. I just want to hang out and play a game or something like that. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this. If you want to be used by the Lord in service to him, and I trust that that's everybody's heart. Lord, use me whenever you want to use me. 
I, I can tell you from experience, ministry is rarely nine to five and it's never convenient. Well, I, I won't say it's, it's rarely convenient. It's usually inconvenient. So if you want to be used by the Lord, let me go back to my point here because I don't have it on my notes here. What we do with our time matters. Paul said this to Timothy. Preach the word. So I'm reading out of 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Hey, guys, we're on God's time. We're on his calendar. We have our schedules, but God's schedule trumps ours all the time. And so we want to be re remain flexible. So let's move on here. Verse 13. Again, speaking about the high priest, right? He shall take a wife and her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. Nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. You'll recall earlier the ordinary priests, they were not to marry a divorced wife or a harlot. Now the high priests, they're not even allowed to marry a widow only a virgin. Why? Complete, complete purity for the high priest. Why? Absolutely nothing could that could have. Absolutely nothing could affect their bloodlines uh, or their offspring as a high priest, because they're in that special role as a high priest. In other words, uh, you know, say some of Aaron's sons, there was you know some skeletons in his closet or whatever, and uh, and they go, well, are you really qualified to be the high priest? Because, you know, there's this, there's this scandal about you and stuff. There's n there was never to be any kind of scandal like that for the high priest. And so why am I bringing that up? For you and I as believers, if we want to be effective in ministry, is there anything that could affect, negatively affect our ministry? And that's the answer, I think, is the flesh, our own flesh. And sixth point, how we deal with our flesh matters. How we deal with our flesh matters. Listen, as believers, the Bible clearly teaches you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. If you're a born-again believer this morning, the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. But the question is, are we walking according to the Spirit or are we walking according to the flesh? And I think as we move on here in verse, in the rest of these verses at the end of this chapter, we'll, we'll, we'll see in greater detail and I'll bring out some more points here that I want to show you. But let's look at this, verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron, saying, no man uh, of your descendants of succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach, a man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuary. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. And then, of course, Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. 
When you read a passage like that, I think I need to explain something here. I think it's important to understand having a physical defect or a handicap does not make you a second-class citizen, okay? And it didn't in this day and age either when, in the time of when Leviticus was written. It didn't make these men second-class citizens. They were still priests. They were still part of the priesthood. They could still eat of the food uh, provided for the priesthood. The only restriction was you can't go into the Holy of Holies to, to, to function and do the role of the high priest. Why? Because of the picture is so important. See, the high priest himself, the altar that he, that he offered the sacrifices on, the sacrifice itself, the tabernacle, everything had to be pure and perfect without blemish. Why? Because it all is a picture of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. You know, I am so thankful that Jesus sinned, didn't sin, that he never sinned, that he was the perfect representation on earth because he's the perfect lamb of God. Because, you know, can you imagine if, if there was something like we didn't really know this about Jesus and now it's coming out? No, that, he was perfect. He had, and so the picture, it pointing to Jesus, it had, he's the type, the high priest is the type of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But there's a practical standpoint here that I want to look at. First of all, and I'm not going to go through every, every defect that's mentioned here, but a few of them. If a priest was a dwarf, do you think how, think, imagine how difficult it would be to serve as the priest in the tabernacle. You know, they'd have to light the lampstand. They didn't have step stools in the, in, the, in the tabernacle or anything like that. They had to change out the showbread. They had to put the burnt offering on the altar. Could a dwarf literally do it? Chances are probably no. How could a blind or a lame person perform the duties of sacrificing an animal and pouring blood out on the altar? I mean, how could they perform the duties, this, the role of the high priest? They, they couldn't. To be able to minister effectively, the priest had to be free of defects. And so it is with you and I spiritually. Are we blind? In other words, now I'm talking physical blindness, but are we so self-centered, so self-focused that we don't see needs around us? Are we so blind that we have no vision of the eternal? We just look, we just look at life at the way it is, right? The way we're living right now. We don't even think about eternity. Because if, that's, if we're blind in those ways, we can't be used effectively by the Lord. What if we have a lame or a broken foot? In other words, our walk or our witness is compromised. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian anymore. Doesn't mean all of a sudden you're booted out of the kingdom, but it does mean that you're not gonna be effectively used by the Lord in ministry. How about scabs? Or excuse me, uh, a, I mentioned dwarf, didn't I? I did. Well, if you're a dwarf, has your spiritual growth been stunted? You know, are, are you still just a spiritual baby? You've never advanced to maturity. Or scabs, you know, carrying around a festering wound under the surface that you've never addressed it. You've got this festering wound and, and you can't minister or you can't be used by the Lord effectively with those. A eunuch, you might go, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> listen, if you can't reproduce yourself because of your compromise or because of your, the way you're living your life, if there's no uh, observable or little observable fruit in the Lord or fruit in, in the spirit, there's no spiritual fruit, you know, how can the Lord use you in those situations? 
Listen, I've known many Christians, and of course there's none of you guys here, but I've known Christians who are spiritual babies. You know, they still need their spiritual huggies. They're still drinking only milk. They can't digest solid food. They're too self-absorbed to be useful for the Lord. I've known Christians, again, none of you. I've known other Christians who've been so compromised, and that, I was like that myself, so compromised that they're a bad witness for Christ. I've known other Christians who are bitter, unforgiving, unforgiving. They are harboring some anger or some situation that's festering just below the surface. And every once in a while, it just it comes out in the, in, in the service. It, it, it hinders your being used by the Lord in ministry. I've seen Christians that have little or no observable fruit in their lives, and you kind of wonder, oh, I wonder if they are saved or not. I, I mean, I don't see any fruit. I don't go around questioning people's salvation, though. I don't go, oh, I, I don't think that person's saved. But here's the deal. Do you want to be used by the Lord in ministry? Do you really want to be used by him? If you do, some of these things need to change in your life. Plain and simple, they need to change. Uh, if you want to minister in a role of the priest to a lost and dying world. You know, none of us are free of blemishes. You can ask my wife, you can ask my family, they, you know, and you probably know it yourselves. I'm not free of blemishes or defects, and neither are you, by the way. None of us have it all together. This is why we need to deal with the issues, though. There are issues that we can deal with and change. But there's also issues that we can't change or we're having difficulty changing. And for those, we need the Holy Spirit to enable us and empower us to minister. And so my final point is, are we filled with, led by, and relying on the Holy Spirit? Again, you could just cruise through life as a Christian, and you know, if, you've, if you're a truly a born-again believer in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. But do you want to be used by the Lord in ministry? Then you need to be led by, filled with, and relying on the Holy Spirit. So I want to just kind of recap. Our relationship with unbelievers matters. Again, if you want to be used by the Lord, our relationship with unbelievers matters. What we set our affections on matters. And I'm going really quick. <laughs> How we control our emotions matters. <laughs> How we spend our time matters. <laughs> How we deal with our flesh matters. And then finally, are we filled with, led by, and relying on the Holy Spirit? So I just want to encourage you. And you know, after the service this morning, um, I'm going to make myself available. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Uh, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I invite you to, I, I, I implore you to don't leave this place without having a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins on the cross. He was the perfect lamb of God. And I'm not perfect, and neither are you, but he died for our sins. And the good news is he rose again from the dead, and he wants to be your Lord and your Savior. He wants to come into your life. He wants to change your life. You know, you, you can try changing everything you want. You know, I'm, I'm going to do this or that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really good in this area or I'm going to start doing this. Or I'm gonna, and, you know, I've done that before. I still try to do that. And you know what? I fail. <laughs> I can do it for a little while and then, man, I blew it again. I can't follow through. The thing is, you can't change your life. But Jesus, can, Jesus Christ can. And so he doesn't want to fix your heart. He wants to give you a new heart. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I'd love to pray with you to accept Christ as your Savior. 
for the rest of you that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just encourage you, reflect on this passage. And if you want to be used by the Lord, just I'm praying that the Lord speak into your heart in areas. And you know, um, sometimes it's just a matter of saying, Holy Spirit, help me because I can't, I can't change this. I struggle in this area. And he's there. He's with you. And he wants to empower you to, serve, to live a life in service to him.